Mecha Lecha Heidi Hello, Nerd Forensics fans. We just successfully fled from J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World at Universal Studios, where they actually have an Azkaban prison. We were sent there, of course, for violating her anti-trans laws. And now, we're laying low and broadcasting from the set of Breaking the Magician's Code, Magic's Biggest Secrets Finally Revealed. Because Fox sure as hell hasn't used this set in like 20 years. Millicent Oriana, culture expert. While seeking to unlock the secrets of all fandoms, she is exposed to an overload of every aspect of pop culture. Now, when asked a question about a piece of popular culture, she becomes curious. Now hosting a podcast and joined by amazing guests, she seeks to find answers and find a way to live off her talents and to make a fun podcast. Don't make me ask questions, J.K. Rowling, because I'm a boogie woman. All right. If you couldn't tell from my wonderful intro, we are, of course, doing an episode about magicians today called Alaka Goddamn, or When Magicians Roll Nat Ones. And today I am joined by my producer and fiance, Sophia Baca. Hello, everyone. And for those of you that don't know, Sophia Baca is actually the host of Breaking Math, another podcast brought to you by Santa Fe Trail Media. And today we're going to be talking about, of course, magic. But not that fake phony magic that you get when you're, you know, really into your wizard character in your D&D campaign. We're actually going to be talking about real world magicians and the absolute effects of botching, helping up, or completely ruining a trick. I'm excited. Oh, and it's going to be graphic, right? It's going to be extremely graphic. I mean, there are going to be points where we're going to be talking about people getting blown up, torn up, shot out of cannons. So if you uh, don't want to hear that. Wait until the next episode, because we're going to be like a true crime documentary tonight, but it's going to be a real hoot. All right, so let's just get this party on the road. We're going to start off with a man named Charles Rowan, which I could not find much information about the man other than the botched magic trick. I couldn't even find a date. Oh, yeah, of, of like his birthday and stuff? I couldn't even find a date of the magic trick. Oh, yeah, that's right, huh? Yeah, so the man's name was Charles Rowan, and he was a magician in South Africa who, in 1930 did a trick where he tried to get out of a straitjacket while a car sped toward him at 40 miles an hour. Push him out of the way in exactly three seconds. Should we correct for wind resistance? Hmm, possibly. What do you think? Oh, my. Yeah, so he basically, he could not get himself out of the straitjacket. And the car happened to go over him, which if any of you have ever seen RoboCop, old cars did that 100% of the time. Oh, yeah, and I remember you telling me once that they were like, jagged and stuff not just non-crumply right yeah they were jagged solid steel death machines that absolutely tore people to pieces when they hit them uh if you want to get the idea of what a car back then would do throw a gi joe into a blender and turn it on for like two seconds and watch like what body parts fly off sounds horrible it absolutely is and since of course we couldn't really find anything else about charles rowan other than he definitely died during the trick we're gonna move on now we're gonna talk of course about a man named joe Burris. Joe Burris was born on April 10th, 1958, and he was pronounced dead on November 1st, 1990. He was trying to escape from a glass coffin. Uh, basically, he would put himself in a coffin made of glass and plastic and have them bury him alive while he was in it. And the trick was that he would like escape through the dirt and stuff? Yeah. Uh, the trick itself was actually called Escape from the Buried Casket, and it was all hyphenated in the middle. Speaking of J.K. Rowling... Oh, yeah, and her annoying hyphenating habit. Oh, yeah. He credited himself as being the next Houdini. He was a recovered drug addict and used this fact in any conversation he could. 
claiming that that was his greatest escape trick. So definitely a gimmick. And <laughs> yeah, he was, he was gimmicky. Oh, yeah. And I've met these. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've met the ex-drug people who are way too into it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And that's what he was. So um, the procedure was actually done once perfectly in Oregon, although he did it differently. Um, so the idea was that he wrapped a chain up around himself, lowered himself into the casket, and then was lowered into the ground about seven feet, and the casket was buried in dirt. At some time in 1989, probably Halloween of 1989, in Oregon was where he succeeded. A year later, on October 31st, 1990, he decided to do it again at a place called Blackbeard's Family Fun Center in Fresno, California. It was a benefit for the third floor drug uh, recovery clinic, and he got off to a bad start. He actually began the attempt. He said the chain was too tight around his neck, and he demanded that they stop. So, uh, yeah, the guy basically, after he stopped the stunt, got back to another attempt. And the big difference between this time and last time was he didn't just use dirt. He also decided to use cement. Which is wet dirt and stone, mostly. Like not, It doesn't even have like decaying stuff like dirt in it. <laughs> it's also way more dense and way more heavy. Oh, yeah. So, basically, the cement, actually, after it got thrown onto the glass coffin... The coffin exploded, like the glass just shattered. And because there was cement in there, they couldn't get him out. He wound up suffocating, and they couldn't resuscitate him, and he wound up pronounced dead on November 1st. So the thing I have to credit, I I mean, I also do have to bring up, is he credited himself as being the next Houdini, and he died on October 31st in a presumably suicidal stunt. I mean, yeah, it's... It does kind of seem like it might be that way, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. He probably committed suicide to signify that he was going to be the next Houdini. Yeah, he he sounds like a loony. The ex-drug stuff, the constantly talking about being the next Houdini. Why do you want to be in the next Houdini? Why wouldn't you want to be better than Houdini? Exactly. So, yeah, that was our friend Joe Burris. Now, moving on, we also have another fun magician by the name of Ganesta who was born on March 29th, 1878, and died on November 9th, 1930. His full name was Royden Joseph Gilbert Rezan de la Ganesta, and I'm assuming he was uh, Cajun, because he was from the South, so I know I'm not pronouncing that name correctly. Oh yeah, just out of curiosity, are Cajuns Catholic? You might explain the five names. Uh, Yes, that's actually, I believe, the uh, predominant religion for Cajun people is Catholicism. Gotcha. Just I was curious because you see five names and you think old school Catholic. Well, yeah. If you go to Louisiana, there are tons of Catholic churches everywhere. So, uh, yeah. Basically, he was from a place called Ashland, Kentucky, and he died in Frankfort, Kentucky. So he was pretty much a Kentucky magician. Oh yeah. And uh, the procedure basically was that he would escape from an oversized milk can that would be filled with water, and he'd be locked in. And he would have only a couple minutes before he could drown. And a milk can is just like a like a like a, um like a keg for milk, right? Yeah, it's like a big canister that milkmen would use on the back of their trucks, and they'd use those to fill the bottles back when they would deliver bottles of milk at your house. And uh, basically, the thing was rigged. It was like a it was a uh, it was a trick container. The neck would detach, so it was really easy for him to escape. It would actually it would look like he was forcing his way out. Brrrr! So it'd be like, so it's like like a can that kind of like splits in the middle kind of thing instead of uh, yeah yeah it'd be like uh, it'd be like pretending you're the Hulk and breaking out of a box that's cut at the seams. So um, 
the real problem was that this container was made out of solid metal. And uh, at some point during shipping, probably UPS. I mean, I know if you're listening to my show, you've heard me talk bad about UPS. I assume they mess up everybody's packages nowadays. Um, the container was being used for the trick, got smashed or knocked into a wall or mishandled during transit. And it was dented. It actually rendered the container unopenable. And Mr. Ganesta suffocated. God, it's horrifying. It's also horrifying that they didn't do safety checks before and after. Yeah, that actually would have been better. But, you know, you learn from experience. Uh, and I guess, yeah, I guess you, can, you only die once. <laughs> yeah, you only die once. Now to take a little break from the horror, we're actually going to talk about a magician who managed to survive. Princess Tenko was born on June 29th, 1859. In 2007, she was doing a stunt on July 24th called the Spike Illusion. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to get out of the box in time. It was, uh, you know, one of those, you're in a box, they shove a bunch of swords through it. Yeah. And uh, she was actually the successor to another magician before her. Gotcha. So, uh, Tenko actually got stabbed a bunch of times from these sabers. She was, uh, I can say that she was a pop idol before she became a magician. Oh, uh, yeah. What, what country is she from? Japan. Japan. So... She got stabbed a bunch of times with these swords, and she survived. She actually wound up with uh, several ribs broken. Her cheekbone was punctured and broken. Um, she finished her show, actually, that night. Like, Teddy Roosevelt, after he got shot by that nut. Oh, yeah, where his bullet uh, was stopped by his speech, right? Yeah, by the nut who claimed that William Kinley re was really killed by Roosevelt. Oh, God. And then, then he, like, he went on. Wasn't it two hours of him bleeding and talking? Yeah. And he survived in the early 1900s. He was an insane person. Oh, he absolutely was. That's why I would, like I said, Teddy Roosevelt dressed like Craven the Hunter. Listen to my other shows to understand what I was talking about. So she actually wound up surviving and she wound up uh, going on to have a very controversial career where she would perform in North Korea. And as a Japanese person, that's a big no-no. Uh, just, um, uh, just like governmentally or culturally? Both. Uh, Korea, Japan have very, 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 very tense relations, uh, especially with North Korea, because, you know, there's just a lot going on there. I mean, personally, I would love to see unified Korea, and I would like to see them be able to get along with Japan. But that's, you know, asking to get over like over 100 years of bad blood. It's probably never going to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, or if it does, it'll be in a very strange and sudden way. <clears throat> oh, yeah, it will absolutely be the strangest, most sudden way it ever happens. So, you know, I'm not going to criticize her for performing in, you know, in North Korea. I will say that uh, if you ever see that video of Dennis Rodman uh, defending the Kim family, he looks like he's possessed, and that's kind of funny. I got to watch that. Ask Obama about that. Yeah, ask Obama. They, ask Obama. they said you're going to talk about yeah, it. Guess what? Ask Hillary Clinton. Why do you ask those, ask those Obama, what are you afraid of? Come talk to me. Obama, I don't hate your guts. Hillary, I love you. Bill Clinton, I love you. All right. So now we're going to move on to, of course, a big hero of the show, Eric Weiss, better known as Harry Houdini. As we said, he was born Eric Weiss on March 24th, 1874 in Budapest, Kingdom of Hungary, Austria-Hungary at the time. The cause of death for him was actually peritonitis um, due, to a, due to a ruptured abdomen. And peritonitis is like sepsis, right? Of kind of well, it's like ruptured, ruptured intestine or um, or uh, appendix. Appendix, right? Yes. And uh, he actually let people hit him in the abdomen as a trick to show like his endurance. 
Some dude blindsided him and managed to hit him really hard and caused his appendix to instantly burst. According to the autopsy, he had severe appendicitis beforehand. So he would have just uh, done it anyway. He would, he would have been dead anyway, probably, because he said, because, uh, th- I mean, these surgeries have been going on for a while, but I know, you know, before penicillin, it was still really hard to survive any surgery. Especially if your appendix had bursted. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So he, he likely would have died in his sleep later that night. Houdini, of course, you know, after he died, told his wife that he would come back And every Halloween until her death, she actually was known to do seances and expose fake mystics and stuff, trying to, like, contact her husband. Oh, interesting. So she kind of led a career as a debunker? Yeah, as a debunker, trying to contact her husband. Was Houdini a debunker? He was. He absolutely was. Uh, He believed that magic was real, but he had just never found real magic. That's kind of fascinating in itself. Yeah. Houdini's a fascinating guy. We should totally do a whole episode about him. Moving on, we're going to actually talk about Siegfried and Roy, who were born Siegfried Fischbacher and Ludwig Horn. Siegfried was born on June 13th, 1939. He died on January 13th, 2021. He was from Rosenheim, Bavaria, Germany. His parents were Martin and Maria Fischbacher, a housewife and a father who was a painter who ended up as a POW in the USSR. What is known about his childhood is that he purchased a book on magic as a kid. In 1956, he began working in a hotel in Italy, and he eventually began work on a cruise ship known as the T.S. Bremen, which sailed for 41 years. At some point in the 1960s is when he did that. Now, moving on to Roy. He was born on October 30, uh, or sorry, October 3rd, 1944, and he died on May 8th, 2020. And he was born in... Nordingham, Oldenburg, Germany. He was born during bomb raids in World War II. That's intense. Yeah. Uh, to Joanna Horn, and his father is unknown. Somebody who died during World War II, though. Yeah. Um, his mom later remarried a construction worker, and she worked in a factory. Roy was interested in animals at an extremely young age. He actually had a childhood dog that he brought up constantly named uh, Hex, or Witch in English. They had a family friend who actually founded the Bremen Zoo, and that gave him a lot of experience around animals as a kid. And also, just kind of side note, I think it's kind of interesting that the cruise ship is named after the city for some reason. Yeah, I'm, I would love to figure out the reason for that. Yeah, that, 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 that detail just always stood out to me. I thought they would explain it at some point in the sources. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to look that up sometime. He was actually able to get a lot of experience around animals because of that. And at the age of 13, he left uh, school to become a waiter on the Bremen cruise ship. There, he actually met Siegfried, who at the time was going by the name Delamar. They performed together, and they were eventually fired for bringing a live cheetah onto the ship. Which, uh, I'm wondering also at what point they were fired for that. (laughs) Like, is it when they brought it on, did they actually manage to bring it on? I'm assuming they did a show and people realized if that thing gets out, a lot of passengers are getting hurt. God. Yeah. After they were fired, they began, or they had been performing together for a little bit, and the owner of the Astoria Theater actually managed to see their act when they went back to the city. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, they actually wound up, she hired the duo to perform on the nightclub circuit, and they were like discovered, discovered in Paris in 1967. So you might have more insight into this. Um, do you know how that nightclub circuit works? Okay, so yeah, actually I do. Um, so what would happen is like you'd get big 
like, or not big, you'd get hired for the nightclub circuit. And you'd be playing nightclubs all over the country, little clubs, big clubs, whatever. They like move you around and stuff. Mm-hmm. They move you around all over the world. Whatever clubs want you, they'll pay for you. They'll book you. They'll keep you there and everything. And eventually, if you're lucky, you'll have like a talent agent. See you do your stand up or your magic or your singing or whatever. And they'll see that and they'll be a little bit bigger of a talent agent. And they'll be like, hey, I can get you acts in Vegas. I can get you acts on The Tonight Show. Things like that. I gotcha. So eventually in Paris, they were discovered and they began doing shows in casinos in Vegas from the 60s and the 80s. By 1988, they had become U.S. citizens. And an interesting thing, everybody knew they were gay. It was just like a common thing. Everybody knew they were lovers and everything. They were extremely private. Never discussed the personal lives. Yeah, because you said like li- like literally never, right? In their entire like, how long was their career? Like 50 years, 60? Um, their career, let's see, it ended in 2007. And they began working together in the 60s. So yeah, about 50 years. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Basically, things went well for them until on October 3rd, 2003, during a show at the Mirage, which had become like their spot to perform. Yeah, it's a, it's a hotel in Las Vegas, right? Yes. Um, they did their, their show with tigers and stuff, which personally, I don't think you should perform with large cats. It's a horrible thing to get an animal that riled up and put him in front of a crowd to perform. Animals are not performers usually. Oh, yeah. And I know one time we were discussing this and you said there's like, you know, exceptions like, you know, like dogs like learning tricks and certain types of parrots and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Certain birds and stuff, they like it. They enjoy performing. Other animals do not. Yeah, and I know elephants have to be basically abused into it. And the same thing goes for like tigers and stuff. So basically what happened was they had a white tiger named Montecore. And Montecore wound up attacking Horn, like Roy Horn, and really hurt him bad. Uh, originally, what happened was Roy took out the microphone and held it to Montecore's mouth, or Montecore's mouth, and told him, say hello to the audience. The tiger bit at him and swiped at him, which was originally part of the act. And Roy was supposed to like establish, like, I have perfect control over the tiger. And the tiger bit his arm and he began commanding the tiger to stop. And trainers on standby started pulling out meat, trying to distract Montecore. Mm-hmm. And Horn tried to run away, which probably aggravated the tiger. The tiger was like, oh, you're food. Yeah, pursuit. Pursuit and attacked him. The tiger clawed at his legs. He fell onto his side and hit his head. Trainers rushed in to try controlling the tiger. So, like, the tiger clawed at his legs and he wound up falling onto his side and hitting his head. Um, Trainers rushed in to try to control the tiger, at which point the tiger bit Horn on the neck and began to drag him off stage. The trainers were going to shoot the tiger, so at some point, they decided to spray it with fire extinguishers, and the tiger finally let go. And the neck, jeez. Yeah, so Horn's spine wound up really like badly severed. He almost died because of blood loss. His spinal cord and his nerves wound up permanently damaged. He lost motor and speech function. Not completely, but pretty bad. Yeah. And he had a stroke during the whole thing, which after they dragged him to the emergency room, uh, Roy began demanding, do not hurt Montecore. He is a good cat. And, you know, I mean, at least he was willing to accept, like, that was my fault, whatever happened. Yeah, it seems like he's not, like, necessarily, like, 
a bad yeah. dude, but yeah, he's he's not like you know like P.T. Barnum and like you know like um well I don't, not even P.T. Barnum but like Edison and stuff or that 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 that, that tiger guy that ran for president. Oh yeah, that, that they made <laughs> uh, that docu series about. And now yeah. he's like in jail or out of jail. Yeah, he's I think he's still in jail. Yeah, he ordered a hit on somebody. <laughs> oh, oof. So, yeah. So and granted, she fed her husband to a tiger. If you haven't seen Tiger King, watch Tiger King. It's it's wild. Oh yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so a few months later, in September of 2004, he began telling people that Montecourt saved his life by dragging him to safety while he was having a stroke, which probably isn't the case. He probably had the stroke because he was being attacked. Uh, can strokes be triggered? Oh, absolutely, by extreme stress. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure exactly how that worked. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, if you get, I've heard of people, like, you know, you get hit by a car and you get dragged for a little bit and ha you have a stroke during the dragging. Oh, oof. Yeah. So... That's what he always claimed about the tiger. It was more likely that keeping a tiger as a performer eventually caused the tiger to wig out. Yeah, just normal breakdown. Yeah. And eventually that wound up uh that wound up really hurting their career cuz I mean Roy was just no longer in the same condition to perform anymore. Uh, at the same time another like a trainer that that like was a big cat trainer said that the tiger attacked Horn because he was obviously mishandling it. Um, of course, the duo always dismissed the guy as a busybody. That's what they always said he was. Um, Horn's condition eventually improved, and he was able to walk and talk with help from Siegfried by 2006. And uh, when was the accident? Uh, like 2001, you said? 2003. 2003, gotcha. Uh, he was doing daily rehab. In 2009, they staged their final appearance. They had Montecor on stage with them as a benefit for the Ru uh, Lou Ruvo Brain Institute. On April, although they did also say that that guy that they dismissed as a busybody all the time, he said it was a different tiger. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. On April 3rd, 2010, they announced they had retired. On March 19th, 2014, Montecourt died. Uh, April 28th, 2020, Roy actually wound up contracting COVID, and by May 8th, he was dead. January 11th, 2021, Fishbacher announced that he had pancreatic cancer and it was terminal. By January 13th, 2021, he was dead. That was that just sounds brutal and quick. Yeah, and it really, really was. Um, the thing is, though, I will say that um, there's a lot more wildness involving involving Siegfried and Roy and their tigers. I will, <laughs> I will tell you all a great story about a former Oakland Raiders kicker by the name of Cole Ford, who was fired for missing a ton of kicks in 1997, like a ton of really crucial kicks. He was a terrible kicker. He apparently used to constantly go to Siegfried and Roy's like private zoo and he would yell at the tigers like he would scream homophobic slurs at the tigers and stuff until he threw him out. And at some point, a few weeks later, he wound up driving up to their house and blasting shotgun rounds into their house. Jeez, shotgun rounds. So big holes. Yeah, yeah. Well, if they were slugs, yeah, which I believe they were. He began firing slugs at their house and drove away. Um he was eventually arrested and everything, and it's like, what the hell is wrong with the guy? Oh, I know. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that, too. And uh, and uh, you said he was a football player? Yeah, he was a former player for the Oakland Raiders. He was a kicker, a place kicker. Okay, gotcha. So now we're going to move on to a man named George Lalonde, which I could not find any information about the guy's birth or death. God, these magicians are just like... 
their their final trick is just disappear. No, just kidding. Yeah, their final trick is having no information about them other than the one thing that people remember. <laughs> so in uh, 1936 in Montreal, he was doing the uh, you know for my next trick, I'm gonna saw a person in half. Standard. Yeah, standard old school magic. You know, somebody tucks their legs up into the top of the box. You cut it in half, and you trick everybody into thinking you sawed somebody in half. Yeah, pretty basic, right? <laughs> a man by the name of Henry Howard, who was a spectator in the crowd, freaked out, ran up onto the stage, grabbed a saber from the stage, and jammed it into Lalonde's neck. Oh, God. Yeah, he attempted to murder him. Uh, Lalonde survived. And afterward, Henry was arrested, and he told the police, I couldn't bear to see him cut that woman in two. What? God, what is with all these like nutty people from like the... Like 1900s. Arsenic, lead. Oh, yeah. And, of course, you know, you're, you're the Patriot Boy. Of course, if you're a fan of arsenic and lead, you should really give mercury and lead a try. It gives you that, uh, that Jesus Christy feel. <laughs> That's right, folks. Patriot Boy. Be the Messiah you want to be. We need to uh, get to the next magician. We're going to talk about a man named Chung Ling Su. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. So Chung Ling Su was born William Ellsworth Robinson on April 2nd, 1861. And he died on March 4, uh, 24th, 1918. Now, that sounds like a white name or at least a Western name. Well, it may sound like the name of a white man and you would be right. So Chung Ling Su actually copied all of his tricks from an actual Chinese magician by the name of Ching Ling Fu, who he had a beef with. Maybe because he was stealing all his tricks? If you're going to get mad at somebody for stealing from you, <laughs> obviously, you know, you just need to grow up. And appropriating is not appropriate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a trick called Executed by the Boxers, which uh, there's a lot of problems with this. Number one, the Boxers didn't use firearms. That's actually the reason the Boxer Rebellion went so badly. Yeah, that's like their whole deal is that they try to punch bullets, right? They tried to... No, they believed they were bulletproof. Oh, uh, gotcha. Yes. The boxers also didn't kill Chinese people unless they were Christian or British sympathizers or like half white or something, but they wouldn't kill Chinese people. Yeah. So the trick was... Uh, uh, it was a bullet catch, which anybody who knows anything about a bullet catch should know that is the most dangerous magic trick in the world to perform. So how do you do that? I mean, obviously, disclaimer, disclaimer, but... So you asked how it's done, and you told me to add disclaimers, and I do. Um, here's the thing. When done properly and safely, it's actually one of the like easiest, safer tricks to do. The real problem comes from human error. So there are two ways that the trick is possibly done. The main way being you use sleight of hand to convince people you've loaded the gun with a bullet. You hand a volunteer the gun, and you tell them to fire at you. And when they do, you hold your hand up like you've caught the bullet. Mm hmm the other way to do it is you actually show everybody you loaded the gun, you pack it down, and the packing tool actually has a magnet on it. The problem is there, sometimes the magnet might not catch the bullet. He has a lot of trust to put into a, a, a little magnet, especially, what year did you say this was? Um, bullet tricks were mostly done in the uh, uh, Edwardian era. Yeah, so definitely not like, you know, definitely not a really powerful magnet. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so... The thing is, the real problem with it was, though, is that you would a lot of the time have some dick stick a bullet or a button or a penny 
or whatever they could find into the gun because I'm going to prove to everybody that you're not really magical. I'm a genius. And uh, so you'd get hit with a button that was fired out of a gun. <laughs> and they'd be like, see, see, he didn't catch the bullet. I was right. It's not murder if you're proving some a point, huh? Yeah. So you see, neckbeards have been around for a long time. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, he did the trick. And uh, normally he'd have two people fire at him and he'd lift up both of his hands and act like he caught both the bullets. Um, somebody at some point during his show, uh, one night decided that (laughs) they would put a washer or a penny or whatever in the gun. So he was out doing his elaborate act, his, uh, his, uh, racist yellow face bit, which my favorite part of all of this is that he actually had an interpreter and he would just say stuff in complete gibberish. He'd be like, and the guy would look at him and be like, Mr. Seuss says this, this, this. I can just imagine how sensitively that was done. And I'm horrified, like without anything else. Oh, you know, I mean, I saw that James Bond movie where Sean Connery wore clips in his eyes. Uh, yeah, it's not tasteful like um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very tasteful. I put a clip in there, but I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, Mickey Rooney just screams Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, basically... He was doing his trick like normal, and he got hit with a penny or a wash or whatever. And the first time he ever broke character, he screamed in perfect English, Oh my God, I've been shot! Yeah, so no need for an interpreter. Nope. (laughs) And he fell over, and he died a few hours later. And now we're going to get to the end of our show, and we're going to talk about a man by the name of Balabrega, who, this is my personal favorite. Any of you that are familiar with the episode of King of the Hill, Slide of Hank, probably know about the donkey trick. Thank you. And what is your name, my lovely? Oh, um, May Lamo, Peggy Hill. Ah, you speak Spanish. In a way. Then you must know that most piñatas is filled with the candies. And este burro is no exception. But the sweetness I am filling it with is the sweetness that is Peggy Hill. <laughs> I will take three swings at the burro. If Miss Peggy Hill is lucky, I will miss. Will she get lucky tonight? (laughs) One! All right, mister, I've had enough of your tomfoolery. Let her out of there. As you wish. Where's Peggy? You bring my wife back right now or I'm getting the manager. I'm right here, Hank. Basically, the whole way the trick would work is they would hit the they would hit the moth with a flame. And since there was nobody in it, the moth would blow up and everybody would be like, whoa. And the real problem with this, though, is it needed an active coal gas line to work. And they would what, pump the coal gas into a... Uh... They would pump it through a stage light. Gotcha. Yeah, they'd pump it through a stage light, and that would actually cause the uh, the, the moth to ignite. Gotcha. And um, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, so coal gas is uh, 50% hydrogen, 35% methane, 5% ethylene, um, and 10% carbon monoxide, all of which are a little flammable. 
Yeah, all of those are a little flammable, and when you compound them together, it has a califericity of 24.7 megajoules of meters cubed. Which means that every meter cubed, every like box three feet on each side, has about 20 megajoules of energy, which is not as much as it sounds like, but it's, it's a good deal. Yeah, it's a good deal. So it'll make a big bang, and it will scare everybody. Unfortunately, though, because he couldn't use coal gas because they didn't have lines for it. And where was that again? Brazil. Brazil, yeah. He opted to buy bladders full of acetylene. And if you don't know about acetylene, it burns at 5,600 degrees Fahrenheit or 3,100 degrees Celsius. It has a calorificity of 54.7 megajoules per meters cubed. So it's about twice as powerful as coal gas when it blows up. Yeah, and it burns way hotter, too. <laughs> it burns way hotter. It's way more unstable. Um, a bladder is a lot more unstable than a gas line. Yeah, because you don't have, um, you don't have uh, uh, valves and stuff controlling flow, really. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, bl- bladders were used back in the day. Like um, Hindenburg had uh, hydrogen bladders that filled it, stuff like yeah. that. But imagine trying to ignite a whoopee cushion full of gas. Oh, yeah. How would you control that? Like, <laughs> you'd need a whole setup. It's a bad idea. This all sounds like a bad idea. Okay. So during the performance, actually, um, the bladder was lit and it popped. It blinded as many as 12 people. It damaged multiple people's ears. It actually managed to make... The volunteer, the assistant, and Balabrega all disappear. Oh, God. Ta-da! Except for there was a red mist everywhere to signify where they went. Now, do you know how big the balloon was? Did they ever say in the articles? No. All I know is that they all three were vaporized. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, Balabrega performed his greatest trick ever that night. He completely disappeared. <laughs> And that should wrap us up tonight for our episode of Nerd Forensics. Alica, goddamn. And goddamn for real. Yeah, goddamn you all. Goddamn everyone. Goddamn us, everyone. I've been Millicent Oriana, and of course, you can always reach me at nerdforensics at gmail.com. You can always hit me up on my Patreon if you want to give me money because I'm awesome at patreon.com slash nerdforensics. You can also reach me out to me at Twitter at Camp Pod Millie, and that's Camp with a K. You can also reach me at Nerd Forensics on Facebook. Thank you all, and I hope you have a great rest of your night. Take care of each other, and uh, don't screw with magic. It will get you. <laughs>